If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit JenniferDianeGhoston.com. Thanks so much for being here. It's Jennifer Diane Ghoston, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? Affectionately called Sandy is my guest today. We formerly met in the Adoptee Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly and would go on to see one another in other adoptee spaces like Adoption Mosaic, founded by Astrid Castro. There are so many twists and turns to Sandy's journey that fascinate me, and you will soon learn of them too. Prior to us recording, when she shared of her relationship growing up with her adoptive dad, I couldn't hold back my smile because it reminded me of the oh-so-good childhood times with my adoptive dad, who loved cars, fishing, and baseball. As many adoptees know, birth family reunions can be fraught with unexpected outcomes. In this episode, Sandy shares a part of her adoption story that she has unpacked for over two decades. At present, she is still in the thick of processing recent major losses. Allow me to introduce you to one of the bubbliest and passionate people I know. Her skill set in a variety of different areas speaks to her desire to learn as much as she can about any and everything. I believe it has provided her the opportunity to engage with people from all walks of life and be open to simultaneously helping them and herself. Sandy, I know you are in Wisconsin, and I just am thrilled to be able to have this time with you today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a little chilly out there. It's a typical November Wisconsin day, but really looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, it's chilly here too, but you know, being from the Midwest, I I adapt pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> we learn. Don't we? Yeah. I know there's so many fascinating things about your lived experience that you've shared with me. I, I, like you're, you are trained in theater from Juilliard. So impressive. Um, you have a master's degree in spirituality, which is, I, I just think that's amazing. And you have you're a freelance interpreter in the medical field. Like you, you have these skills that I'm just like in awe of. And I know you are an adoptee. And so mm-hmm. along with like all of your experiences, I want to talk about one of the things that just I couldn't believe it when you said that you, upon your adoption, and, and I'm using air quotes because there was no paperwork until you were two years old. So I kind of want to like start there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I should probably clarify for the sake of Juilliard, I didn't go there for a degree. I went there to be trained to do that theatrical interpreting. Okay. I don't want people to think that I'm actually on stage doing you know, some 
amazing Shakespearean acting or something. <laughs> well, you probably could but, write it, though. <laughs> <laughs> not Shakespeare, but I could write something fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it was an interesting situation because as I've learned more about my family, I realized just how much loss there is for both of my mothers. And basically, I, I didn't have paperwork because my adopted mother had been orphaned when she was five years old. She was the youngest of five children and ended up in an orphanage. And then she had an aunt who was a Dominican nun out in Washington State. And she lived in the convent with the sisters for a while before being sent back to Milwaukee to live in her teen years. And then she was trying desperately to get pregnant. She could not. Everyone in the family around her was very easily having baby after baby. And so they applied to adopt and Milwaukee County turned her down and said, with your background, we just don't think that you could mother a child. You don't know how to. You haven't had that experience, and we have to turn you down. And she is one of the most stubborn people I know. I'm probably second in line. <laughs> and I learned well. And she contacted her aunt, who was the nun out in Washington, running the hospital where I was born. And Sister Ruth found a doctor who knew a woman who wanted to give a baby up. And it was all arranged through Sister Ruth so that when I was born, uh, she booked a ticket to fly out to pick me up, picked me up from the hospital at five and a half weeks or so, and brought me back to Wisconsin and then waited two years before telling the state that she had me so that the adoption could be formalized. From what I can tell reading the paperwork from social services here in Milwaukee, no paperwork had been signed. And I don't see anything in any of the records I received from Washington State either. So I believe my first mother did not sign papers, but she was interviewed after two years by the, let me back it up, here in Wisconsin, they contacted the county where I was born and asked them to please check in, to find her and check in and make sure this was something that she had wanted. And she agreed, yes, this was something she wanted and painfully that she wanted me adopted far away so she didn't have to worry about seeing me on the street, which mm. was pretty hard to read. Yeah. So it was desired. They still almost took me away from my adopted mother. I don't know that she ever knew that, but it was in the paperwork. And at just over two and a half years old, the adoption became formal here mm. in Wisconsin. I don't think I've ever heard a story quite like that. Have you? Yeah, it's a no, I don't think I have. I and mean, there have to be other people who maybe in kinship, I would think, more like that, that a family member took the child and maybe did not formally do the adoption. Right. Yeah. But they were family. So mm -hmm. there was, I don't know. I, all I know is it was very illegal. The state of Wisconsin does not allow you to adopt a child across state lines without permission. Apparently it was allowed in Washington state, but not in Wisconsin. Mm. So what she had done was illegal. Right. And I think that's part of the reason they thought about taking me away. Yeah. When I learned that part of your story, I thought, 
that sounds like something that could be prosecuted. But um, fortunately, I guess nothing Mm -hmm. like that ever happened. You just yeah. went on and were a part of this fam- this new family. Right, yeah. right. I think at that point, her bet paid off, you know, wait long enough. Right. And they won't take the child because it would be traumatic. And so I hadn't already been traumatized. And I'm guessing so, you, you know, it was a, a happy home, a healthy home. It, it was. I mean, I certainly... You know, I don't like it when people say they aren't you lucky you had a better life because I don't think it's about luck. I wouldn't consider myself lucky for losing my heritage. But when I see the opportunities that I had in my adopted home, I most definitely would not have had those in my biological home. Mm -hmm. It was a and is a very different culture in, you know, the western part of Washington state kind of a logging, fishing kind of culture. And I grew up in a big city in the Midwest, very different from what my life would have been there. None of my siblings have gone to college. I don't even think I have any, I don't even have any nieces and nephews who went to university at all. In my adopted family, I was the first to go to the university as well, but I had the opportunity and they wanted me to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have had that opportunity there. So it, it's it's a double-edged sword. It's right. bittersweet that I don't have that. It's a very real heritage that I lost, a culture that I lost. Yeah. And then, you know, my biological brother will often joke that, you know, they ruined me by moving me to the Midwest because I hate seafood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, yeah, I know you are in reunion. And before we get to that, I know that you recently lost your, your dad, your adoptive dad. Mm-hmm. I want to say I'm sorry for your loss. And I know your mom has dementia, your adoptive mom. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot that that's yeah. going on and just want to hold space for that, that you've been dealing with. Thank yeah. you. I'm her power of attorney. So our relationship has been tough. I like to say, I, I think I had to prove that they were wrong and she could be a good mother so that she could adopt my sister 10 years later. Mm-hmm. And she went through the proper channels for that and was approved. But I was under the microscope for most of my life. Even after I left the house, it, it was just too much. So being her power of attorney for healthcare, it's appropriate. I have the background of working in healthcare, so I know what we're up against. But it's tough now that she's becoming more childlike to to take on that role when I still hold anger I wish I didn't hold. Yeah, And I can't get answers to questions anymore. Right. That's gone. She can't answer those questions anymore. But that's my message to anyone listening. Please, if you have the opportunity to ask questions and you think they might answer your questions, do not wait. Ask your questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but- I was very close to my adopted dad and to his family, much closer to them than I was to my maternal side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was his power of attorney as well when the decision was made to have to go into hospice. So that was very difficult. And I miss him. I, and I think it was something of a kind of the impetus for me to jump into adoptee land. 
I always knew that I was adopted and I had been reunited. It's been 27 years since I was reunited with my siblings, but I really didn't get into the impact of my adoption on my life as a parent and a grandparent until after my father was gone. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did you always know if you were an adopted person? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you decide to embark upon search, what year is this? I am not the one who reunited us. Okay. So I, a little bit of background. So my mother, my birth mother was Wanda. And she was going through a nasty divorce from her husband, who is the father of my three oldest siblings. I was baby number five. I had a sister immediately older than me who ended up being adopted by a member of the father's family. That's a little bit confusing. But basically what happened is her husband, Byron, had been unfaithful. He was in the military. She was lonely. She was also unfaithful. My sister, immediately older than me, so baby number four, was the product of that relationship. And then Byron was suing for divorce. My birth mother was raised in foster care for a part of her life. She was also in an abusive, neglectful home. And I think she really latched on to his family because... That was an intact family all of his life. His mother, his father, his brother, they were very tight-knit. And Wanda, my birth mother, was raised in foster care for at least all of her teenage years and did not have that kind of support from family. It was easy for him to take control of the situation, and she had no one to turn to, basically. Mm-hmm. She did turn to her father at one point, and he asked his stepdaughter, Lorraine, if she would take in and help my birth mother and the four kids while she was going through the divorce. And Lorraine did, took them in. During that time, Lorraine's brother, Harvey, was going through a terrible marriage as well. And he and Wanda, I think I might have been the product of a one-night stand. Let's just say that. I don't think this was an ongoing relationship. I suspect they spent a little too much time with their beer goggles on. And one thing led to another, and she was pregnant with me. So the Moody's, the Byron side of the family, made a deal with her. If you'll give up the child you're carrying... We'll allow you to keep custody of the two oldest children, and our family will take the two youngest children. She agreed to it. I know that the judge made the decision to take all four of them away from her and said she had the morals of an alley cat. I never knew why that was said until I met my Aunt Lorraine. So my birth father's name is Harvey. Harvey and Wanda technically were step-siblings, but they became step-siblings, the best I can tell, after they were already adults. Their parents married each other after the two of them were already adults. It's not like they grew up in the same home. 
But I think she was so shamed by that event that that's why the judge took the kids away from her. She lost custody of all of her children. Mm. So I have four older siblings, one boy, he's number two, one brother. The sister immediately older than me was supposed to be adopted by Byron's sister. So they came to pick her up and took her to Southern Oregon and then never formally adopted her. At one point, that sister, that woman who was supposed to adopt her, ran off with someone else and left my sister with the husband who physically and sexually abused her. Hmm. She ended up in foster care as well. And because she was related for a while to Byron's family, she knew who her siblings were. None of them knew anything about me. When she finally worked up the nerve to go back and locate our brother, because his last name, of course, wouldn't have changed, he remembered who she was. They went to the courthouse to find out why she was given away during the divorce, but the three of them were kept together. And when the divorce papers were pulled up, it said sister one, brother one, sister two, sister three, baby boy. It said I was a baby boy. Wow. So your siblings found you. They found me. And from me to the oldest in those five children, it's just a little over six years. So she had children, one right after the other. Mm. And we never understood why the paperwork said that I was a boy until 2016 or 17. I've forgotten now when I finally discovered who my birth father was and met my Aunt Lorraine. And she was able to tell me that the sisters in the hospital put a blue band on me and led them to believe I was a boy. Do you think so that they couldn't locate me? I was going to say, do you think that was deliberate? Yeah, yeah. I do. Wow. Because my mother had lived in that convent, they knew who was taking me. And I think it was deliberate. Yeah. When lots I... of secrets, lots of backroom deals. Yeah. It's, it's a strange thing. I always... You know, it's a weird thing to be a secret. When my siblings found out about me, they literally had no idea there was another sibling and my birth mother would not respond. She was furious that they found out. Mm. Yeah. So she did not want a relationship at all, which I respected. And I met her. I didn't meet her. I saw her at a family wedding. My oldest sister's daughter, my niece, was getting married, and she and my daughter had become good friends and asked my daughter to stand up in that wedding. So I was at the wedding, and Wanda said that if I was coming, she would not come to the wedding. And so I called my niece and said, you know, she was your grandmother before I was your aunt, and she needs to be there more than I do. And she said, nope, I love you both. If she doesn't want to come, that's on her. <laughs> I love that. God bless her. I love <laughs> you know? that. God bless her. So yeah. I went and I had been told I got there a week ahead and I had been told she was not coming because she knew I was coming. So I was prepared for the fact that she was not going to come. And at the last minute, I found out she was there. Mm. So, so you so actually got to be in the same room with her. You saw, you saw her. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I had the opportunity then to take out, you know, the guest book that people will sign at a wedding. I used that as an excuse to walk out into the foyer and set it down on a table. 
and looked at her across the room and said hello, nodded, said hello. She said hello back, and that was it. That was our only communication ever. Mm. I knew that she was a hothead. I knew that she had no problem reaming people out, and I was not going to ruin my niece's wedding. Right. Wow. So when, when we went into the church to sit down, she was brought up and sat directly in front of me in the church. And all I could think of is I could reach out and touch her. She was right there. Mm. I could have touched her, but I knew it could set her off and I wouldn't do it. So what I thought, I, I just wanted to see her even closer. What I thought is she's quite a bit shorter than I am. And when the bride walks up the aisle, we all turn to look. She's now behind me. So when I turned to look at my niece, I turned back and looked at her and said, can you see all right? And she said, yes. And that was it. But I forced her to communicate with me. Right. Sounds like she's caring. I'm sorry. Sounds like. Yeah. No, she is. She a lot of shame. A lot of it. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until later on when I found out that my father was technically her stepbrother, that I understood that why literally on her deathbed 18 months after that wedding, she was dying. And my oldest sister and brother begged her, please tell us the name of our two sisters' fathers. She turned away. She wouldn't answer. Mm. So I found out by accident. (laughs) I had been this huge family secret. No one knew anything about me. And I was accustomed to that. I thought I had figured out who my birth father was. And so I let it go. I was wrong. I did 23andMe many years before because none of them ever went to the doctor and I wanted some medical background. And then someone said, you know, you get better ethnicity breakdowns with ancestry. And I had already gone on Ancestry to build a family tree. I had all of it. I knew the entire family story on that side. I thought I knew who my birth father was, so I built out that tree. So when the Ancestry results came in, I had a message from a man named Tom saying, it looks like you and I are first cousins, and I'm not familiar with your name. Is it a married name? So I looked at my family trees I had built out and he was nowhere there. And that's when I realized that one of his uncles had to be my birth father. Wow. So you really, you didn't do ancestry to find your birth father. No. Right. I really believed I knew who it was. Right. (laughs) I was so wrong. (laughs) The funny thing is everybody in the family believed it was possible. It would have been, it would have been Byron's brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and everyone believed it was possible, which is kind of funny. Right. I kind of tiptoed around it and asked if he had any family members who had maybe lived in that area of Washington. And I said, you know, the late 50s, early 60s. I gave it a broad range of time. And he said, oh, I grew up in that town. And then I knew I was right. And I said, I don't know what else to say, except that one of your uncles is my birth father. And he said, let me ask my mom. Called me. No, he texted me the next morning and said, mom says, yes, it's Uncle Harvey, who had already passed away by that time. It is Uncle Harvey, and she'd like to talk to you. And I said, I'll be home at 1030 in the morning. I didn't know, and you can't know from a message, is that she wants to talk to you or is it she wants to talk to you right right. (laughs) 
you have no idea what you're heading into at that moment. So yeah. at 1030, as I crossed the threshold of my kitchen, the phone rang and I heard, is this Sandy? And I said, yes. Is this my Aunt Lorraine? And she said, oh, my God, I've thought of you all these years. Mm. Now, all this time, nobody knew anything about me. I was the family secret. So my first response was, wait, you knew about me? And she said, knew about you, honey. I was in the room when you were born. Mm. And I bent over in the fetal position. I remember that, like going down to the floor. I didn't cry, but tears came to my eyes because yeah. it was like I was being seen for the first time. Yeah. And she was, yeah, she was able to tell me that story about the blue band. She said, we always thought you were a boy. Mm. And I was the only child for my father. He didn't have any other children. He did find out I was a girl. And I suspect Wanda must have told him that after social services got a hold of her when I was two. Right. So my Aunt Lorraine and I would talk on the phone. She turned 90 on September 11th in 2019. And I got a phone call. Well, that spring, I'd gotten a phone call that she had lung cancer and at her age had decided that she didn't want to do any treatments. She was very much at peace with what was going on. She was very with it, very happy. She and I talked about me coming to visit when she felt like she needed me to be there. She would call me. And then I got a phone call from her daughter, my cousin, Sherry, saying, Sandy, you need to get here. Mom's bad. So I had booked a flight, I think, for two weeks out. And she, I told her that. And she said, no, I mean, you need to get here now. So the next day I flew in to Seattle and got down there. And as I walked in her apartment, she's in a hospital bed. Sherry said, Mom, your precious Sandy is here. <laughs> she was obviously on a lot of pain medication, but I said, you know, I, I love you. And she said, I love you back. And I said, you know, when you get there, please tell my dad I, I love him too. And if there's any way to visit, please visit me, but don't scare me. <laughs> right. See, Aunt <laughs> Lorraine. I'll try. Yeah, mm -hmm. Aunt Lorraine is a perfect example of what is possible in reunion, you know, all the, exactly. all the things that um, aren't so pretty. It is the Aunt Lorraine's that always make me say, yeah, it was worth it. Yeah. Because you were yeah. able to have a relationship with her, a loving, like mm -hmm. really genuine. And I was holding her hand. Yeah. I was holding her hand when she passed away. Yeah. So it completed the circle. She was there when I came into the world and I was with her when she went out. Yeah. And what that and, meant to her, I can only imagine. Oh, I know. And we, you know, we had our laughs in between. She had a wicked sense of humor. When I met her for the first time, we went to her brother, my uncle Bob's house. Everybody in the family had been cremated and there was a tree planted over their cremains. So he showed me the tree that my birth father had his cremains under and my cousin said, you know, that tree has never produced plums. In fact, the leaves are the wrong color. And then he looks up and goes, wait, the leaves just, they're the color they're supposed to be now. They never <laughs> have been before. And, and my uncle said, you know, I can give you a little bit of the dirt from under the tree. So my Aunt Lorraine gave me a old used prescription plastic brown bottle and we put some dirt in. My Uncle Bob was a pretty goofy guy. I don't know, just unusual, kind of hard to communicate with, but very loving. And he put some dirt in and said, who knows, maybe it's your father's eye. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I have that. And then when my Aunt Lorraine passed away, I also have some of her remains. Mm -hmm. So I have them both together here with me.
yeah, it was, it was very special. It was a very short period of time that I got to have her. But I learned things about my father and how traumatic his life had been. And he had a drinking problem, but he loved learning. He loved to read. He, he was a voracious reader. So I finally felt like there was someone that I connected with. Yeah, it was, it was good for me. It was good for my soul. To, I, I felt seen. Right. Yeah, what, what's beautiful mm-hmm. to me kind of stands out right now I'm thinking about is both sides of your biological family kind of found you, especially mm-hmm. when, you know, when I think about my story, yeah, I did the searching and, and found everybody on my maternal side and then DNA five years later. And now I'm reaching out saying, Hey, I, you know, I was adopted and um, listening to your story. I, I just wonder like, that's different. You weren't seeking to find your birth father because you thought you already knew who it was. And mm-hmm. then on your maternal side, your siblings, like, I, I don't know, I love sibling relationships. Yeah. They recognize <laughs> you're out there. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. that's, I, I find that to be so interesting in your story. Yeah. I was always closest to my brother. I'm not at all close to the middle sister. She has some mental health issues and really is she's not someone you want to trust. Mm -hmm. I have a relationship with her daughter. I have MS and her daughter also has MS. So she and I have connected over that, but I don't have a relationship with that sister. My oldest sister is one of the most loving and kind people I know, and truly the only one who saw good in our mother. So she and I connect over that because I see a woman who lived a traumatic life and lost all of her children in one fell swoop. And of course she became angry. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. Of course she did. So she and I can connect over that. My brother and I have very similar senses of humor. You know, he'll kind of joke on the brother he didn't have because the first time I was out there, I went to a hardware store with him and knew exactly what piece he was looking for. We connected, and I love him, and I love his wife. One month before they connected with me, he and his wife had twin daughters. One of my nieces, one of the twin nieces, just gave birth this summer, and I was out there for the shower. And at the shower, I was, this is my Aunt Sandy. Mm. Not This is my aunt who was adopted away and came back and was reunited. There's no, adopted isn't added to the title. I'm her aunt. Mm-hmm. I'm Aunt Sandy. Right. You know, and it's really precious. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've stated what I think was meaningful, quite meaningful in being in reunion. What would you say has been meaningful? Knowing my roots mm-hmm. is beyond precious to me. After getting into more of the family history, especially on Wanda's side, I found out the trauma that followed our family all the way back to, we were some of the founding families of Virginia. And when I did my DNA, found out that I have some African blood, which should tell you what my family was up to back then. And there was just, there's a lot of trauma that, has been passed from person to person but so my birth mother was 
in foster care because she was in a neglectful home. Her mother, my grandmother, lost her mother when she was 11 months old and was taken into another family. And that father, supposedly, family lore is, is the father of her first child. And then she went on to have something like eight men from five or eight children from five different men. Her mother, my great grandmother, lost both of her parents when she was a teenager and was married off to a 27 year old man when she was 14. And there's just there's trauma and loss that goes back so far in that family. And as hard as it is to learn that, as hard as it is to read those stories, there's something about it that makes so much sense for me personally that it it completed me. It made it easier for me to deal with some of my own traumas around the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. I I see that. And they carry on. I mean, now I have children. I have three adult children. I have five grandchildren. You know, I held on far too tight to my daughter and she's pulled away and our relationship is strained. I love her dearly and it breaks my heart. It's another abandonment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It just, it's, <laughs> what did someone say? It's the grift that keeps on giving. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. It is. It is. It yeah, just I'm never so- ends. It's like an echo. I'm sorry that that's happening. Um yeah, but uh, I know many families can relate to going through tough times like that, hard times like that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I guess I, I think it's just not yet is it back on one accord, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm always hopeful. I love mm-hmm. her dearly. She was my firstborn and she's precious to me. The first one I looked like, you know, right. I'll never, I'll never give up hope. Yeah. I know that you uh, are a part of adoptee spaces kind of regularly, and I know mm-hmm. you were, I guess, in the audience or or a part of Adoption Mosaic when I happened to be a alternate panelist. And mm-hmm. I was like, I know that voice when you asked the question, because <laughs> the subject was parenting as an adoptee, like a powerful topic uh, that Ostrid mm-hmm. Castro came up with. And I, I loved your question. My son is 32 and, and your kids are, I'm, I'm guessing, around that age because you and I are around the same age. Oh, I, I had my daughter when I was barely 18. So my daughter is 45. Okay. Yeah, they're 45, 43, and 41. I have middle-aged children. How could this happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't believe my son is in his 30s. Like, I'm like, how did that? Like, I, it was just 1990, it seems, that I brought him home. I know. <laughs> But um, maybe I should ask you if you can recall the question you asked, because I I don't want to say it wrong. No, I think it was something like there's a part of me that's jealous for the fact that people who are younger now and coming to this place in adoptee land where they can have conversations about how they parent their children. But for those of us who were in that baby scoop time period, you know, we raised our children and responded from our trauma and it impacted that. It impacted them. It impacted our grandchildren. And no one talks about what happens later. What about what happens later? And right. you've already had the, the trauma pass on. And I know when you asked the question, 
I said, that that's me. Like that question resonates with me because the, the panelists were younger. Their kids were still younger. And so they mm-hmm. weren't at the, yeah, like my son, I'm thinking he hasn't really been talking about it or knowing that it's maybe a language even in the adoption community because I hadn't been talking about it throughout his childhood. You know, it wouldn't be until he was mm-hmm. 20 that I was like, hey, this is important, this adoption thing. And he's like, well, what happened all these other years when it wasn't important? But what I did learn is that, as I shared on Adoption Mosaic that day, is that it did take time, you know, like, I'm, and I w- I'm going to say like 10 years with him to just be constantly talking about it. Because as soon as I immersed myself into the community, which was around 20. 20- 2009, 2010, somewhere in there, I brought him mm-hmm. along with me. So I guess what I was hoping to share to anybody in the situation of having well into adulthood children as adoptees, parenting, that it's never too late. Like there's always hope as long as we are really bringing them along, even though they're 30, 40 or whatever with what we're going through and our experiences within the community, if that makes sense. And, mm-hmm. you know, cause sometimes we don't, we don't necessarily share things with our loved ones. We're just kind of going along the journey by ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, or just being in communication with those in the community, other adoptees. So I, I just wanted the, I want the listener to know that if you find yourself in a situation like that where you're like, why is my kid or my adult kids or even other family members, why aren't they like understanding? I think the success I've had is because I'm always talking about it. Like, this is what happened today. This is what I did today. This is the podcast, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Just constantly sharing my experience, which I wasn't doing that for a long right. time. I wasn't either. Yeah. Right. And and I think my children, oh, I know my children are very close or had grown up very close to my adoptive parents. So sadly, sometimes I think they're no different than the public that says, but, but you had a good life. What is right. the problem? Yeah. And because I didn't recognize how much I was holding on to my daughter, especially because she looked like me, you know, how much time is she spending with her in-laws who I just want to say are some of my favorite people on earth. <laughs> I understand why she spent time with them. I love them. It was so painful. I would be up sobbing at night. I would have anxiety attacks and that holding on, she's gone. We are going to be at her house for Thanksgiving on Friday. And I know it's reluctant. I know she, does everything she can to ignore me when we go to the kids' soccer games. And, you know, I, I've done everything that I can. Let's put it that way. I've done everything I can to mess it up, and I've tried to do everything I can to fix it again, but she's not in a place to listen. I, I told her, I'll sit down, and you can yell and scream at me if you need to about whatever happened so that we can get somewhere with this. And I know what it was that tipped this off, but she won't do it. And so now... After a fair amount of therapy, EMDR, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've been able to say this is on her now. When I studied spirituality in Jewish spirituality at Yom Kippur, the new year, first you have 30 days in which to make amends to people you've harmed. And 
if you've tried sincerely three times and the person will not forgive you, God forgives you. You've done everything you can. And in essence, they're taking on the, I don't want to use the word sin, but certainly like the sin of not accepting that apology. And so I've reached the point where I can say I have done everything that I can possibly do. I will love her until my dying day. Nothing she can do can make me stop loving her. And all I can do is hope that someday she will feel comfortable enough to sit down and, you know, read me out if she needs to. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I can't make it happen. And for my boys, you know, it's different with boys. <laughs> my middle son is the peacemaker, as middle children so often are. But he was very close to my dad, my adopted dad. And my dad never had any sons. And my son was the first grandson. They're very close. It's hard for them to hear that there was trauma and loss in this situation with these people that they love so dearly and who were such amazing grandparents to them. I'm glad they were amazing grandparents. I know my mother oh, was... Oh, they were. Yeah, my mother was really a wonderful grandmother. I Sometimes I would just chuckle at the things she would let my son get away with that she would never let mm-hmm. me get away with. And she <laughs> said, when you become a grandparent, you'll understand how this works. <laughs> Yeah, he has fond memories of my mother, my adoptive mother, and and I'm glad for that. Like, I'm so glad for that. But he's still open to hearing you. Yeah, and I think if my daughter could listen, we could probably get somewhere. <laughs> I don't just, she's just not in a space right now, and the hard part is that I was very much involved in the lives of her two girls, my youngest two grandchildren, you know, they were at my house two days a week. I watched them. And then at some point I was working and not able to do it anymore. And that was when the final cut took place. And she pretty much does everything she can to keep me from being with them. And it's breaking their hearts. They don't understand it. They're 12 and 10. They don't understand why they call me Gaga. Mm -hmm. They don't understand why they don't go to Gaga's house anymore. They don't understand why mom doesn't let them spend the night at Gaga's house anymore. You know, I'll just say, look, you know, adults sometimes get angry with each other and it's nothing you've done. It's, right. I miss you. I I wish you were here, but there's not anything I can do. And the, the 10-year-old says, maybe I should talk to my mom. I said, I think you better just leave that one alone. <laughs> <laughs> God bless 10-year-olds because they think they can solve the problems of the world. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but when you no, share, honey, it's okay. when you shared the forgiveness in 30 days, or within 30 days? Is that how it goes? Yeah, because the belief is that the new year, the book of life closes. So if you haven't had the opportunity to make amends, and you pass away during that year, it's still it's on you. And I'm not Jewish. So I'm probably messing up pieces of this. But that is the general idea of it as I learned it in the spirituality class. So I know that you have been a part of adoptive voices and continue to be even as we speak now. And I was hoping that you would be willing to read two of your pieces for the episode. I would love to. I actually chose some very small pieces. So I have three of them if there's enough time, but I will start with the two short ones first. Okay. Did you title them? They're all pretty short. You titled each of them? Uh, Well, did I? It's It's not necessary. I didn't with this one. It was uh, the prompt last night. The prompt was what's in a name. 
and this is what came. So sometimes the title would just be what the prompt was. Okay. Right. Okay. So this one was in response to what's in a name. What's in a name. Okay. She named me, I don't know. And then she walked away. She named me, let's just forget. And then she forced it to be so. She named me baby boy and everyone believed it. And then they named me Sandra, but I didn't recognize it. They named me chosen, but I was just next in line. They named me daughter, but I didn't quite fit in. So I named me character and then I played it well. I named me stranger so I could be like them. I named me lacking, fearful, anxious, and it fit for too long. Then I walked away from the names and became myself. She who has no name yet. You know, when you said that you wrote that in like five minutes or something, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. She named me, they named me, I named it in the the powerful ending. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, sometimes, you know, the muse is strong. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I think, he, no, I didn't name this one either. It was uh, from our prompt a week ago, and I don't remember what that was. But here we go. There is a space inside of me that I think must hold my soul, but it's a hurting soul, a damaged soul. It starts at the base of my throat, travels under my sternum where my heart is supposed to live and then it finds its terminus in my stomach or maybe it stops at my diaphragm I'm not sure that space holds my ache when it wakes up I want to disappear any way I can if I could reach in and take a hold of it I'd ask someone else to live with it for a while then my ache could be acknowledged and I could have some peace My soul space wakes up when I'm not good enough to be seen, when someone dear to me brushes me aside, when I know I'm invisible again, when trauma comes for an unwelcomed visit. Abandonment feeds it. Rejection is jet fuel, hot and dangerous. How can a soul space cause such pain, such a desire to disappear? I imagine that my mother grabbed a hold of that space when I was being born. Since she refused to even look at me, she filled it with a deep sense of foreboding. No peace, only pain, only the consummate horrible desire to run away, to disappear, to cease to be so I don't have to feel the pain anymore. It overwhelms me when it awakens and no one else can feel it. And so to them, it must not exist. It's all in my head, but it's not. It's all in that space from the base of my throat under my sternum where my heart is supposed to live and then down to my stomach or maybe my diaphragm. It's lonely there. So very lonely. Yeah, that piece is so, you being so, I feel vulnerable, like naked to the the pain. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I've often said that when when I have that pain from abandonment or rejection, when that comes, that's right where it is. I feel it so strongly and I I wish there was something I could do to make it go away and there's nothing I can do to make it go away. It just sits there. 
This one actually has a title and it's called Lies and Losses. You are always wanted. You're so lucky because you'll always know that. You are always loved, honey. Lies. I know the truth now. The truth of my loss is there in that shadowy figure I longed for at night, in my dreams, in my prayers, in the dark. That was you. It was you I searched for from the moment I first took the cold, sterile room air into my newborn lungs. You that my brand new, tiny, burnix-covered arms, flailing, shaking from the cold, reached out for, crying out for the familiar warmth of your body. You, the throbbing heartbeat I was lulled by, yours. That voice that echoed through my watery home for so long. You, you, just a shadowy figure in a dark mirror, cord cut, loss immediate, lies begun. But the truth hurts more. It cuts. I pretend away the pain. She didn't want to look at you when you were born. She didn't want to run into you on the street, so she sent you far away. She didn't want us to say you're our sister. She didn't want you to come to the family wedding, and if you were there, she wouldn't come. She didn't want us to tell you that she was dying. She didn't want us to tell you that she was dead. She didn't want. She didn't want. She didn't want me. Mm. That piece is so powerful. I I think you, like you nailed it in describing what you shared earlier about where your birth mother is, like where, where she is with the whole idea of having a daughter. Like, I, mm-hmm. I yeah, like that's just so painful. And at the same time, I, I, I just, as I said earlier, that carrying so much shame mm-hmm. would have her feeling like all the things you just said. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, it's the reason that even if someone thinks they aren't a writer, I really recommend getting into something like the Adopting Voices group, maybe the Thursday night group that isn't so much focused on writing specific genres and things like that because there are things that are comfortable to say there in adoptee land and they come out almost unbidden and it's like oh that's how I felt because I've been given a space to share it Mm. I just heard a psychiatrist say I was watching um, a Netflix movie or documentary Stultz, S-T-U-T-Z. Actually, what it is, it's about a patient interviewing his his psychiatrist. And one of the things he says is writing. He says writing allows you to get, like have a better relationship with your unconscious. And Mm -hmm. he absolutely said like journal, you know, get something where you're writing and getting to know the part of yourself that's not conscious. And I thought about that because I journal pretty regularly. And of course, the writing group, I think, allows people to get things out of their heads onto the page. And even when rereading it or reading it out loud, that's what I think is so powerful about Adoptive Voices, where you, mm-hmm. you're reading it out loud for the other writers, but you're also doing that for yourself. And that a lot comes out of that, a lot of good comes out of having written, having read, 
listening to other people's words through their voice. There's something really powerful going on there. But yeah, writing is a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. And it surprises us. It surprises us. That's the thing, because we're not really in touch mm-hmm. necessarily, if at all, with our unconscious. You know, we do so much like in routine and, and, and we move around, which can be helpful to not have to think about every single thing you have to do. But at the same time, mindfulness is very important too, where we're really understanding exactly why we're doing what we're doing in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I really want to value your time, of course, and honor it. And I just think that the last thing I want to ask you is, is there anything that I did not ask you that you want to share? Oh, goodness. I can't think of anything right now. Just, you know, if there's anyone out there, whoever thinks they're going to put something together for those of us who are parents and grandparents to talk about how that's been, boy, sign me up. I'm, <laughs> I, I just I think it's the, the piece that is left out and most desperately needs to be talked about. Yeah, it's, I, I it's think, missing. yeah, I agree. And the adoption mosaic, um, that topic that day in, I guess, August of this year, was one that I've really been sitting with because as a grandparent, like you, I'm a grandparent, and I know that my approach to the subject of adoption, me being an adoptee, is going to be very different than what my son had. And, and mm-hmm. I think it's important so that we can have as many allies. <laughs> like I often think yes. we can never have enough allies. And what better allies are my grandkids, right, in his gen- generation. And so it's important that we really have it in our every in habit. I should say it's important for me to have it in my everyday conversations and interactions, particularly with the younger generation that I, that I did not do with my son. Yes. Yes. And I'm just going to put out there that I've directed retreats. So if anybody ever wants to have one on that subject, call me. <laughs> oh, okay, great. I could put that in the show notes too, right? Yeah. Sure. Also, I will be on Adoption and Mosaic in March where the topic will be um, long-term reunion. Because oh. I've been in reunion with my siblings for 27 years. Yes. I'll be one of the panelists. Oh, I look forward to that. Yes. So that's March 2023. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Sandy. I just thank you so much for uh, creating the time for us to to do this. And I, like I say, I don't know who needs to hear your story. And I absolutely don't know how many people will benefit from your words. So thank you for for your time. Thank you so much for giving us this platform to be able to discuss things. It really means a lot to all of us. I know at least one faithful listener, my dear Aunt Juanita, caught on right away that Sandy's birth mom and mine share the same first name of Wanda. Of course, each time Sandy mentioned the name, I felt my birth mother's presence in my spirit. When Sandy mentions that her story of reunion was without her intentionality of doing the searching for birth family, I considered that quite meaningful. The idea that her maternal siblings found her and learning through a DNA test that her birth father was someone other than she first thought 
is another example of how things can turn out so very different than we would expect. Secondary rejection by her birth mother seemed to suggest the deep pain of shame that often accompanies the subject of relinquishment, particularly from a certain generation. I hold space for biological mothers who were unable to raise their children for whatever the reason. The fact that many of Sandy's biological family members, especially Aunt Lorraine, embraced her with profound acceptance and love is all about what's possible in reunion. I often think of the importance of writing as a tool whenever possible, and reading our words aloud is an added benefit to us. I believe each time we do so, we experience more healing through that life-giving exercise. And if we're fortunate enough to have another person's ears hear our peace, we extend a gift for them to heal a little more too. Thank you, Sandy, for having this conversation with me. I felt your strong desire to be open and honest during our time together. I love how you speak up and out every time we're in the same spaces with members of the Constellation. You are quick to make a contribution, engage with our community, and position yourself to help others. I appreciate your willingness to share the good and the messiness that you have discovered in your story over the years. I believe the audience, through your vulnerability, is afforded the opportunity to feel less alone in their journey. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, we hope that you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you for being here.